to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness, leaving us feeling as if all of the beliefs that have been guiding us have disappeared and thus unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. The first two volumes, When the Stars Disappear and Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Mark's conversation partner for this episode is Carl K.J. Johnson. K.J. is a retired Marine Corps officer who now directs the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, where he oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind, specifically the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. In this episode, Mark and KJ seek to characterize suffering in a way that covers virtually all of the kinds and degrees of suffering, and then start to explore how it can prompt us to seek God. Here's their conversation. Hey, Mark. At the end of our last episode, you stressed that one crucial insight that comes out of the understanding of the full Christian story is that God is not to be blamed for having created a world that harbors so much human suffering because he didn't create it in that way. He created a pristine world that didn't include any human suffering, but that it was our first parent's decision to disobey his prohibition of eating from the forbidden tree that opened the door to all the human suffering we see now in the world. This time, I think we're gonna explore how you characterize suffering and what that tells us about our everyday lives, isn't it? That's that's right, KJ. Scripture suggests that the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion include the way that suffering now casts a dim haze over much of human life. Yeah. Okay. In fact, some passages of Scripture, such as Psalm 90, which in fact we'll discuss in a future episode, suggests that it casts a lot more than just a dim haze. At one point in that psalm, the Israelites lament, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Even some non-Christians acknowledge this. The MIT philosopher Karen Satega has just written a book, Life is Hard, how philosophy can help us find our way, which claims that there's no cure for human life being hard. To address that, he has chapters on infirmity, loneliness, grief, failure, injustice, and absurdity. And in fact, that's a pretty good catalog of some of the major kinds of suffering. Yeah. Yet, yet I think it is generally unacknowledged just how much suffering there is in human life. There are many kinds and degrees of suffering, and recognizing its full range helps us to live better, more intentional, and more courageous Christian lives. So in this episode, what I want to do is to clarify what suffering is and how it affects us. Yeah, I think you're right. So let's get started. I'll start by asking our listeners to suppose certain things are happening to them. So, listener, suppose that your life is proceeding normally and then you get a mild headache. Usually, 
We want headaches to end because their unpleasantness unsettles us as we feel and anticipate continuing to feel the pain. But now, suppose that when you've previously gotten mild headaches, they occasionally have grown into full-grown migraines that landed you moaning on your, uh, moaning on your stomach in bed. Then, then what would getting a mild headache do to you? You'd find that it's unsettling in a way that goes beyond the disagreeableness arising directly from the pain. Because now that pain might not be the whole story. Given what has sometimes happened in the past, it would no longer be merely a matter of your hurting just a little. Now your headache could possibly be heralding something worse to come, greater pain and perhaps disabling pain. That would make getting a mild headache now more than mildly unpleasant by adding the anxiety of wondering what the future might bring. Are you following me so far, KJ? Yeah, so far so good. So let's vary the picture again. Suppose you, KJ, like one of my former students, had a brain tumor several years ago that first manifested itself in mild headaches that eventually became severe migraines. Surgery removed the tumor with radiation therapy following, but there were no guarantees that it wouldn't regrow. So KJ, if this were your situation and you were to get a headache now, especially if it seemed to be threatening to become a migraine, how would that tend to affect you? Well, unless it was somehow certain that my headache wasn't caused by a you know, recurring tumor, it would be, to use your, your terminology, unpleasant in a new way. That's right. That's right. And that's the terminology I wanted you to use. Okay. Now your primary concern would not be whether you might soon be feeling greater pain. You'd want to know if your life was at risk. Right. Your future would darken, seeming shorter and more ominous. You'd be unsure about how your life story might end. Distant pleasures, such as attending a toddler's college graduation, would no longer seem inevitable. And nearer ones, such as planning to buy something next week that you really want, would lose some of their appeal. Right. In fact, some pleasures might not seem worth pursuing at all. Whew. But that's not the end of it. Oh, good. If you were to learn that this headache was in fact caused by the tumor's regrowth, then you might start questioning some of your more significant beliefs. You might start doubting God's existence mm -hmm. or his power or his goodness. Knowing that the tumor had regrown would threaten many of your hopes, plans, and dreams. And if you became convinced that the tumor was going to kill you, then you would probably start feeling deep grief. Now, we can mine some useful generalizations about suffering from these possibilities. Okay. For instance, we can rank having, mild, having a mild headache and feeling deep grief on a vertical scale where the center of the scale represents experiences that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and then the top and the bottom of the scale represent what is extremely pleasant, such as perhaps feeling great joy, or what is extremely unpleasant, such as perhaps feeling inconsolable grief. Mm. Then, 
having a mild headache, being depressed, feeling inconsolable grief, all fall below the scale center point. In fact, all sorts of unpleasantness, such as having a bad day at work or being very worried about a child uh, and being unsure that you'll live, would fall somewhere below the center point. And things like tasting something delicious or having a really nice day or getting a promotion or rejoicing in a child's success and having a loving marriage would all rise somewhere above it. Do you get the picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm tracking. Um, you're suggesting that we can locate our suffering on a on a spectrum or a scale, but just to be clear, you're not saying that suffering's relative, right? Well, well, that depends on what we mean by relative, which we'll see in just a minute, because in fact, this scale suggests some things about the nature of suffering. First, unpleasant experiences in life usually unsettle us. Of course, we wouldn't describe the anxiety involved in learning that a brain tumor had regrown as merely unpleasant. Right. Unpleasant is too mild a word for it. But most suffering is unpleasant in the sense that we don't like it. Yet, yet an experience needs to be more than merely unpleasant in order for us to call it suffering. Most of us dislike having a few mosquito bites yet they aren't unpleasant enough for us to say we're suffering. So second, an experience involves suffering only if it exceeds a certain threshold of unpleasantness, one that we can specify, I think, only roughly as our finding it unpleasant enough that we really want it to end. Okay. Thirdly, similar experiences are more or less unpleasant to different people at different times. And here, KJ, is where a kind of relativity comes in. What one person counts as suffering or as significant suffering may not strike someone else the same way. Mm-hmm. You were a Marine, KJ, and so I think you can illustrate this third point in terms of the kinds of people who want to be Marines and the purpose of the training that you got in boot camp. <laughs> yeah, boy, can I. Um, well, any Marine, I mean, really anyone who served in the military, uh, we all know there are certain forms of suffering or discomfort uh, and even sacrifice that are going to be worth it in the end. We've all heard that no pain, no gain kind of saying. Um, but for example, to become a Marine, one has to endure this grueling process of basic training Um And while there are plenty of forms of suffering, most commonly we're pushed to the limits, both physically and psychologically. These extreme conditions are created to toughen up young men and women into persons who can endure hardships and challenges of war, which of course is going to be a whole other level on your scale. So I would say that this, use your term, significant suffering, um, that this is significant suffering that prepares us for greater hardships, as well as affording a pride of achievement and earning the title Marine. Right, right. The same sort of toughening up tends to happen to us almost automatically as we grow up. Mm. Young children, for instance, usually suffer when they lose a puppy, while adult dog breeders probably find such losses merely unpleasant. But here's a fourth feature of suffering. It can be either physical or psychological. Mild headaches are physical pains that may not ruffle us psychologically at all. 
The anxiety felt when we're worried about a child, on the other hand, or when we're struggling to complete a crucial task, is probably primarily psychological. Some suffering, of course, is both physical and psychological. For example, the emotional horror parents feel upon learning that a child has committed suicide is usually accompanied by something like a sick stomach, which those parents tell me sometimes develops into a kind of physical ache that can last for months or even years. And conversely, physical pain caused by migraines may become increasingly more psychological as the dread of getting new ones grows. Yeah, yeah I, I can't imagine the pain of losing a child, but I, I think I've seen that kind of suffering. Uh, you know, Looking back to my time in the Marine Corps, uh, too many of my peers didn't make it home from deployments. And I, I've seen their families suffer in ways that defy simple grief. Right, right. There's more going on than that, and it has even physical effects on them. Here's the final feature of suffering. It's that we may take something to be real suffering. In other words, to be something that is unpleasant enough that we really would like it to end. And yet we may continue to endure it. Athletes endure suffering, as the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews reminded his readers Mm -hmm. when he was urging them to continue running the race God had set before them. His readers needed encouragement because their race included divinely ordained disciplinary suffering. In other words, it was suffering that God intended for their good. His discipline meant that he was actually treating them as children. Mm -hmm. Yet, while it was happening, and this is true of all suffering, as it says in Hebrews 12, verse 11, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And so, those experiencing this divine disciplinary suffering needed encouragement not to do whatever they could to make it end, even though to the degree that it was painful, they wanted it to end. Yeah. So we can sum this up. Suffering involves various kinds and degrees of unpleasantness. Some of it is so mild that we barely care if it ends. And some is so overwhelming that it feels as if we can't survive another moment of it. Yeah, well, that makes that makes perfect sense on one level, Mark, but... Let's make it a little more personal. Until I lost my father and then later my brother, which I discussed in a previous episode, I was pretty untouched or unscathed by serious suffering for the first 40 years of my life. As a result, I was pretty oblivious to just how much it would affect my life. I think cognitively I knew, but I didn't really know. So I I felt pretty prepared for suffering because my theology was pretty solid and I trusted God in all things, or at at least I thought I did. But for that one listener who's out there that may be in the same spot I was 15 years ago, would you please explain some of the ways suffering affects us? Sure. And, and you're, you're right with regard to this, KJ. Um, we may think we understand suffering in its place in human life when really we don't really apprehend how suffering would affect us. That's what my first book is all about, that while we can read in Scripture— 
that various kinds of suffering took place, but until we suffer, those passages don't stand out to us. They aren't relevant to us. They don't strike us as helping us to understand what's happening in our own lives. Exactly. So it, it seems to me that suffering affects us in a couple of ways. I think first and most directly, what it does is it tempers our happiness. A headache's unpleasantness just can't be evaded. We feel badly, and we want it to end. This unsettles us because our lives are often pleasant. Scripture itself suggests this. When Paul observed to the like Kaonians that God hadn't left them without evidence of his existence of goodness because he showed them kindness by sending them rain and crops in their season and their seasons and and thus he satisfied their hearts with food and gladness but these unsettling ripples in our everyday experience remind us that even everyday life isn't always pleasant and therefore doesn't seem to be everything it seems it could be. No. Even a mild confrontation with a colleague makes us uneasy and perhaps a bit restless. More severe suffering can dominate our minds, making us miserable and driving away awareness of anything else. So mild or severe, suffering casts clouds over our lives when it occurs. Yeah, that's that's exactly the sort of response I'm I'm thinking of, Mark here, because when when I lost my brother five years ago, I was really unsettled. Even though uh, it was unexpected, I I think I was more prepared to lose my father, who died about seven years prior to that. And I think that's because we all grow up pretty much expecting to bury our parents at some point. I mean, they're we're not gonna. Right. Need our parents in life except for tragedy. But but what I didn't plan on and what I wasn't prepared for was burying my little brother that early. Mm -hmm. Not only was I unsettled, and this may be the pilot in me, but it felt like I had this sort of psychological vertigo. I was really sort of afloat. Yeah, yeah. And that psychological vertigo, my guess is, at times may have actually bled over into something that was almost felt physically. Yeah, exactly. So... The important thing to keep in mind here, KJ, is that apparently God's intended life to be this way, since, as I mentioned in my last episode with Paul Winters, Genesis chapter 3, surprisingly and surely, counterintuitively, tells us that after the fall, God actually increased the amount and kinds of suffering we now find in the world. Paul and I then got caught up in asking why God would do that, and I never got around to pointing out the verses in the chapter that establish that. Okay, let's get to it. What what are they? Well, they're verses 15 through 17. They involve God's telling Adam and Eve how he was going to respond to their disobedience. Verse 15 tells us that he, God, was going to put enmity, as the text says in several translations. He was going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman. But I think that perhaps the New Living Translation renders it most clearly when it quotes God as saying, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. God was going to cause that. It was going to be something that he was going to do. In verse 16, God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. 
Now, I am not going to try to explain that verse completely right now, although I do explain it in my book. But I think what the verse means is not merely that childbirth would from then on be very painful, but also that motherhood itself would involve suffering by involving all sorts of unpleasant experiences that any mother would wish would end. For instance, losing sleep, caring for children, toiling over the business of doing all the wash that needs to be done, perhaps being hurt by some of their responses to her, uh, worrying about them and feeling sadness for what they were going through. And that goes on no matter how old they are. Now in verse 17, God turns to the man And he says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, God's going to curse the ground because of that. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Now, God cursed the ground so that as the next two verses spell out, it would produce thorns and thistles. And so it would only then be by the sweat of his brow that Adam would feed himself and his family. And that would be his lot, uh, as the end of verse 19 makes clear, until he finally died. By cursing the ground, God ensured that Adam's painful toil would remind him and all of his descendants of humanity's desperate plight. Human life is now a treadmill requiring us to sustain ourselves and our families by doing work that we would often rather not be doing and which indeed is often unpleasant enough to be at least a mild form of suffering that in some way and to some degree we wish would end. Okay, now I promise I did listen to that episode. I've listened to everyone so far, but... (laughs) Do me a favor, please remind me why God did this. In The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis explains it this way. He says, the Christian doctrine of suffering explains a very curious fact about the world we live in. The settled happiness and security that we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world as it now is, But joy, pleasure, and merriment, he has scattered broadcast. Lewis says we are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. And then he says it's not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world, and it would be an obstacle to our return to God A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bath, or a football match have no such tendency. So he concludes that our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Oh, you know I love me some C.S. Lewis. It's a wonderful passage. Now, mild discomforts small but real kinds of suffering, such as the unpleasant moments, 
and child rearing, not childbirth. That's more than just unpleasant. Uh, the unpleasant moments in child rearing or in making a living keep us from getting too comfortable in this sinful world. And greater suffering forces us to look up and ask what's gone wrong. As Lewis says a little earlier in The Problem of Pain, pain is, and now I'm quoting him again, not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. And then he goes on. We can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities, and we can even ignore pleasure. Mm-hmm. But pain insists upon being attended to. God, this is one of his most famous lines, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Strong stuff. Pain and suffering, we can say, tends to wake us up. As incredible and counterintuitive as it seems, God's actually increasing the amount and kinds of suffering we now experience is part of his being merciful to us. He's giving us a heads up, an opportunity to face up to what has gone wrong in the world and what has gone wrong in ourselves in particular. So the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion casts a dim haze over most of human life. Their sin and our sin makes what what should have been painless and joyful, such as childbearing and daily work, difficult and sometimes downright hard. Now, next time, we'll consider a little bit more this first way that suffering is good for us by tempering our happiness. Among other things, I think it means that we shouldn't talk, as a lot of American Christians do nowadays, about Christian flourishing. Our Lord warned that living as his disciples and witnesses was going to involve taking up our crosses every day. Mm-hmm. He never claimed that we'd flourish in this life. And of course, the Apostle Paul said, if this life is all, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Then, KJ, will go on and we'll consider a second way that suffering affects us that's even more significant. Wow. You, you've given us a lot to process here. This is some, this is some serious stuff. Um, and it reminds me of that Bonhoeffer quote that I referred to in a previous episode, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Right. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm guilty of using that flourishing language as well, so I'm, I'm eager to dive into that. But thanks for now for reminding us of the gravity of Christian discipleship, and thanks for helping us continue to make sense of suffering, Mark. I can't wait for our next session. I'm looking forward to it, too. One of the main consequences of sin is that suffering now casts a dim haze over much of human life. Mark clarified what suffering is by describing it as an unpleasant, unsettling experience, either physical or psychological, that we usually want to end as quickly as possible, though at times we may continue to endure it. 
Even though suffering is unpleasant, we see in Genesis 3, 15 to 17, that God actually increased the amount and types of human suffering in our world as his response to Adam and Eve's disobedience and sin. While their sin made what should have been painless and joyful, difficult, and sometimes downright hard, in His mercy, God intends the suffering we experience to prompt us to face up to what has gone wrong in the world and in ourselves. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Carl Johnson. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and KJ thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.